to start with the right problem when you're dealing with life's challenges. And understanding the source is going to be key for how you move forward. My sinfulness actually traced to death. And I could see the connections for the first time in my life. Kind of left my faith during high school years and returned to it in my early 20s, largely through the influence of a Calvinistic Baptist pastor that I worked with. He knew my life was not consistent with the teachings of Christ. I had a lot going on that didn't match up. He told me one day that either I was grieving the Holy Spirit or I was not truly converted. It hit me like a punch in the gut. It, it really, really got me thinking because it came from a place of love. I knew it wasn't a place of judgmentalism. I went home that day, cracked open my Bible for the first first time in forever, started just digging. At the same time, I, re- I realized how many times had I been through some altar call experience that didn't work, didn't make the change happen, didn't fix me. His influence, a lot of it had to do with the Calvinistic convictions that he carried. It was much more serious. I was thinking about things like the grace of God in a totally different way and what conversion meant, what it ought to look like. I did a lot of soul searching. My wife and I, who had been living together for some time, were married in months. It changed my life. It was later we attended his church at the end of the service, and it, it really was overwhelming. He introduces me to the people in the in the church, and everyone in that church knew us by name, had been praying for our salvation for months. And I left there thinking, it worked. There's a resurgence going on in the evangelical world. It was called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. That was the moniker that was given to it. People were starting to reevaluate trends in evangelicalism that dumbed down and just left people hoping for a more historical faith, a more serious faith. It all centered around the question of who gets glory in salvation. Does man get the credit for salvation or does God? The question seems like an obvious one. God gets the glory in salvation. It's not man's doing. That the only way to really remove works and your your merit, what you deserve, anything that God might owe you is to affirm the doctrines of grace, which is a nickname for the tulip in the Calvinistic system. It starts with total depravity, then unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and then perseverance, or what most people know as once saved, always saved. It's a back and forth, and I'm, I'm talking with friends about it. We're debating. It's going on for months. And then this providential moment seems to happen. I go to Los Angeles for a friend's wedding. Last night we're there. Our hotel's, I think it's in Redondo Beach. Right across there was a cheesecake factory. And I went over there to pick up takeout to take back to the hotel on our last night. I'm in line behind a guy. He's real chatty. He's there for some conference. So, somehow in the conversation, he tells me that he went to Whitfield University. And I said, George Whitfield? And he looks at me puzzled because nobody knows who George Whitfield is anymore. One of the great awakening preachers that was extremely influential. And I tell him about my struggle with Calvinism. He recommends this book to me, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner. These are somewhat niche books, but in the Reformed world, I remember uh, I I taught an apologetics class at a local Bible college for a semester. And I remember seeing it in the library. It's a book that, if they're not of that same persuasion, just to know the other side's position, it converted me along with 
an article by R.C. Sproul on semi-Pelagianism. He lays out the question like this, is man dead, sunk to the bottom of the ocean, and he needs Christ to descend into the depths and raise him back to life by giving him new spiritual life? Or is man at the surface of the ocean, flailing his arms around, tossed by the waves, and he needs Christ to give him a perfectly placed life preserver? And this is the idea, a good analogy for how they see the difference in the approach to what we need in salvation. Do we need a lifesaver that we will ultimately grab onto and therefore take partial credit for saving ourselves? Or are we so dead that God has to do all the work? He has to complete the entire rescue mission, bring us back to life. I'm converted eventually. I feel like there's no other option. In the book, he lays out pretty much almost like a manual for converting others to Calvinism right. or the doctrines of grace. He he makes this point. If you're trying to argue someone else into this persuasion, you have to stay on the total depravity until they agree and that there's no point in starting with unconditional election or these other doctrines because unless you accept the premise of total depravity, the Calvinistic system, and the tulip develops later in a controversy, it's a syllogism in a lot of ways. You start in the wrong place in an argument, it doesn't work. I try this out on some friends. A lot of people will talk about uh, when people convert to Calvinism, the convert going through cage phase. If you know a Calvinist, most likely, there was a time in their life when they were in their cage phase that they were really passionate about converting you to Calvinism and probably questioned whether or not you're really a Christian. If you rejected it, the logic that he lays out that you got to, you've got to stay on total depravity. He was right. The whole Calvinistic system is based on this. Began to realize is that so is every other Western system. In fact, you can trace the denominational differences to, to give a quick example. Why does a Baptist refuse to baptize children and a Presbyterian, you know, think it's sinful not to baptize it's because of original sin. Why Why does a Methodist church reject the idea of once saved, always saved, but a Baptist church will think that the Methodist is a heretic for not believing once saved, always saved? It's because of original sin. One advantage to belonging to, say, a conservative Presbyterian church or maybe a Reformed Baptist church or one of these is that they put an emphasis on education. I remember in our church, we went through classes on American church history. We could trace the the proliferation of denominations just in a Sunday school class and spend weeks on that. That probably doesn't happen in most churches. What I realize is if you keep going backwards to the original colonization, there was practically no group that was here that was not of a Calvinistic sort, minus maybe the Quakers and maybe a few others. At one time, the whole country was basically Calvinistic. The Great Awakeners were Calvinistic, Whitfield, minus Wesley. Someday we'll, we can tell the story of Wesley and Whitfield and how they had bitter disagreements but came to be friends. Because of my interest in evangelism, I'm, I'm doing apologetics all the time. I'm getting exposed to unbelieving thought like never before. A lot of people aren't prepared for, for the attacks of atheists and just unbelieving thought, and the, and the fact that our, our culture is, has just turned its back on on Christianity and has become aggressively opposed to it. But I'm I'm interested in this. I'm I'm 
Adam here has been as well for a long time. We want to be able to defend our faith. I'm getting confronted by not just atheists. I remember I was downtown, I'm on the circle, and I'm speaking to a group of students from Marion University. Oh, now I've got a Catholic in front of me, and I'm going to tell him how he's working for his salvation and not giving God all the glory. And, and this guy, he was the first, I hate saying it, first really smart Catholic I'd ever met. It didn't get me wanting to become Catholic, but it got me into apologetics with Catholics. Since they spent a lot of time on dismantling soul scripture and, and so forth, I got really up in the air. At the same time, people like Bart Ehrman are going after the textual transmission of the Bible. It's a really dark time. A lot of the footing I felt like I had was was slipping. I'm debating. I mean, I, I debate to, to test ideas out. So I'm debating with these smart Catholics on call to communion. They showcase ex-Presbyterians like their trophies. There's some Orthodox Christians on the side engaging. And it's totally off the radar for me. I'd always lumped Orthodox Christians, what little I knew about them, with Catholics. I remember just doing my first Wikipedia search. And in the article, it said, Orthodox Christians do not believe in the doctrine of original sin. And I think, how do you explain why we do evil? What's wrong with us? Even the gospel. What's the gospel if Christ is not, is not undoing the sin of Adam and our cooperation with him in it? Their explanation was that death and Satan, as a result of the fall, became the primary competitors to faith, to obedience, to man's destiny. And they put most of their emphasis on resurrection as the cure to that, and even things like exorcism. And eventually, I started seeing my sinfulness actually traced to death. And I could see the connections for the first time in my life. I think a lot of us, when we ask what's wrong with us, a lot of times our default position is to think Adam. If only Adam didn't do this. You're thinking of something you inherited, this, this inclination towards, towards doing evil. There's truth to the inheritance part. I started to realize what I'm experiencing, what the people around me are experiencing, is the fear of death. It's the fear of death and the ways that we try and mitigate the fear of death by either distraction or pleasure. That's the challenge to faith. And that Satan exacerbates this fear. Satan and death work cooperatively by making us paranoid. They want us to be stuck in like the worst sort of PTSD if they can, so that we will not develop in faith. There were some authors that, that started reinforcing this. T. Wright, Adam introduced me to Wright one Sunday after an Easter service, complaining that we really do not give much emphasis to the resurrection. I'll tell that story another time. I'm reading Wright. I'm reading Michael Heiser for the first time. I had avoided him before the Unseen Realm came out. I thought he was advocating for the position that the Israelites were polytheistic. That false notion was corrected. But I got into correspondence with Dr. Michael Heiser, who I came to love dearly. Unseen Realm is probably the only book I've reread eight, nine times. And I, I think I've been through his entire podcast, The Naked Bible, which I recommend. I'm starting to fill out this Orthodox thing. I asked him the question, of all the church groups that exist, who would be the most sympathetic already, just naturally, to the things you've been teaching and saying? I said, would it be the Orthodox Church? And to his knowledge, he agreed. And I thought, 
Okay, maybe I'm on, on the right track here. The doctrine of original sin has become sort of transformed into the doctrine of the transmission of Adam's guilt to all people. The verse never says that Adam's sin, the guilt, was transferred to other human beings. It never says that. Let me read it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man— and death through sin, so when there was sin, then we have, you know, now now death is part of the picture. So death spread to all men. Did you catch that? Death is what spread to all men, all humans. Not guilt. Death. The text says death. Romans 5.12 is about the transmission of mortality to all humans. Because once Adam and Eve sin, they're driven from the garden, they're, they're cut off from the source of life, the presence of God, Eden, all that stuff. Again, they are now going to die. Okay, that, That's what God told them. It's about death. It's not about the transmission of guilt, moral guilt before God. Now, that makes a huge difference. So fast forward to today, Adam and I have been on this sort of journey thinking, thinking through what salvation is, what the Adam and Eve story is based on these new presuppositions. Just like with Bettner's book, where he says, if you start with this, you've got to start here and stay here if you're wanting to convince someone else. If you start with the presupposition that man, one, was not perfect, two, that death comes in as the result of his sin, and it's something he's never experienced, and death is bad, and death is hard, and death makes life challenging, and put back Satan into the Bible, totally forgotten about in most churches, except for Pentecostal churches who often go the opposite direction, almost seem obsessed with Satan, that there's another logical sequence that develops. It's actually liberating. It actually is optimistic while being sober. It's that you can actually trace your motivations to something that's not just Adam's inherited depravity. You're tracing them to death, and that actually allows you to deal with them better. If anyone has ever had any sort of ailment, whether it's a, whether you have some condition, you don't know why you feel sick at your stomach all the time, or you don't know why when the seasons change, you're so depressed, whatever it is, and you get a diagnosis and now you've got a way to move forward. It's liberating. My wife didn't know who her parents were for 30 plus years. When she found her father, it was a, an enormous letdown, but she felt way better. She became different after it. You got an answer to the question, exposing the internal battle that we all face. Why do I do these things? I do the things I hate, and I I have a really hard time doing the good that I, I dream up. Why is it so hard? One answer is, you were born that way because of Adam. The other answer is, death and Satan tag team against you. But there's there's a solution to that. What we're going to do, I believe, is prove this. I really believe that we're going to prove it. So that was a long introduction for me. I'm sure I'll edit out a lot of it. We have so much material to start from, and it you did a great job of bringing up a point that I would really like to hammer home, which is you really need to start with the right problem when you're dealing with life's challenges. And understanding the source of that problem is going to be key for how you move forward. 
just a little bit about my background. I was a fairly suburban Baptist Christian growing up. I went to college. I got hit with all kinds of materialism in the classroom, as well as you know, sensual pleasure temptations all around me. And my worldview was not adequate to take on what I was experiencing. My solution was to find the smallest and most academically robust church, which I'm so thankful for. Those, those people were wonderful. Calvinism, ironically, ha- played a, a really important role in both of our lives in the sense of waking us up to reality, which is, you know, we have to give that credit. But I got a hold of Calvinism as a 20-year-old, I believe. And I definitely went through a strong cage phase. Uh, This made everything make sense. And I like when things make sense. (laughs) It's my personality. And so to impose that on other people was a privilege as opposed to an annoyance (laughs) in my mind. When things logically snap into place and you're so certain about it, there is a zealotry that is immensely powerful. And I would say I've only learned the deceptive feelings of zealous certainty in the last two or three years of my life. And I'm 40 right now. I've come to a point where I'm so certain that I'm not certain about anything other than Jesus Christ and his reality. I make no apology for it. Everything else though, (laughs) the systems that grow up around that truth and the distortions that pop up so easily, of which we think original sin is one of those, has brought me to a place where I'm asking myself the question, did you have the right problem? Thankful. I'm so thankful as an individual that I was able to have my eyes open to the truth of Christ by God's grace. After that, how am I telling myself the story, the Christian truth? And then how am I living, how am I going to live day to day with all the health problems, with all the relational problems, with all the uh, just existing in a society problems of keeping my house running? Where do I seek out friends? How do all of these things fit into the story of Christian reality? How am I living that out? And then how am I telling myself the truth when I have those seasons of bitter doubt and suffering because I've had those seasons, but we've all had suffering and doubt and bouts of severe depression. What truths am I telling myself to get out of those if I believe that Jesus is ultimate reality? A couple of things your story brought to mind for me. The story we tell ourselves is our imagination of the world. It's the story that we we have we retreat to that we fix ourselves with. That is sort of the uh, blueprints for how to get back on track when you've been off track, to feel better when you haven't felt good. If that's wrong, it just doesn't work. It leaves you in a cycle. And we reapply the same solution, and, and we get frustrated. And we think God's not listening to us anymore, or God's not coming through. It creates doubt. And if our problem was wrong, then, well, none of that was necessary. Or we're taking the wrong medicine. Bad medicine is what I need. So it comes into my, it's not what we need. We need good medicine. We, we need ways 
psychologically, spiritually, physically. We need we need remedies that work. If you're evangelical, if you're Protestant, if you're say you've been sinning it up and you're guilty, and you go to your your friend or your pastor and you tell them, what's what's the response? What do you what do you know that it's going to be? Because I think everybody already knows what it's going to be. You're forgiven. Christ has paid the penalty for your sin. You need to live in that forgiveness. But what happens next week when you come back with the same story? Same thing. Pastor had a quote on the pulpit and said, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The comfortable don't ever get afflicted, never are challenged to change, because the fallback is constantly grace. Realize that in so many sermons that I listened to that the assumption on the pastor's part was that we're all just guilt-ridden, torn up in our conscience, and he's there to make sure we feel okay psychologically with that. I think this has been going on a very long time since the Reformation, because this is sort of how Luther solves his own problems with imputation, that he knows he knows imputation did not exist as a historical doctrine before him. But that's how he fixes it. He fixes his his feelings of guilt that plague him incessantly. The average Christian is not challenged to change. I don't know if they even think change is possible. So when you say Luther solved his problem through imputation, what you're saying is Luther was so plagued by his own sin, and I, I know I've read about this multiple times, where he would he couldn't leave his confessor mm-hmm. alone. Uh, he would just be in there constantly. But what did it for him was the the idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, where Christ's righteousness was something like spiritually infused, allowed him then to go out into the world and not feel like he needed to confess sins 24-7, which I suppose we all could if we're being honest with ourselves. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. Yeah, yeah. I think the distinction that the Reformers made is instead of infusion, which is more of the Catholic position, it's all like this like moving around merit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's accounting, like, it's an like, accounting of merit. It, it is. I don't know how not to think of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. When you move merit, mm-hmm. I mean, conceptually, we don't know. It's not something that happens on a day-to-day basis. I'm not giving you my merit, and you're like, thanks, buddy. Put it in my pocket. To talk about merit being infused into another person on a practical level, I think the closest example you can come up with is I buy food for my family, and then I prepare the food for my family, and I give it to my family, and that gives them life. That gives them resources to do what they need to do. Another way another helpful real world example when i was in the presbyterian church was blood transfusions you give your life to one of your children who mm-hmm. happens to match your blood type um that, that's powerful i mean that's real does it translate to this of merit i think i think we when we whenever we hear these analogies we have we have our own set of problems that we want to solve intellectually and then we apply those examples to our intellectual need in that moment. But then we try to transpose it onto something else that we're thinking about. And then I think that's kind of how distortions arise in our thinking, talking about the imputation of merit. The reason I bring this up about Luther, us endeavoring to to do this podcast, I've got lots of people in mind. I know that there's an evangelical who 
who knows nothing about the Reformation. I know that there's people who you know are knee deep in mm-hmm. in the Reformation, and it's hard to address each audience. But but here's the thing: the average evangelical is Lutheran or Reformed in their idea of salvation. Mm-hmm. They believe that you've got to get all your merit, and if you don't call it merit, maybe you just reduce it down to Christ alone mm-hmm. saves me. They believe that Christ is punished on the cross, typically, for our sins. They believe that Christ moves his righteousness into your, however you receive it, a bank account's the best. All these ideas actually trace back to original sin and the problems it creates. There's a different way. There's a different way of understanding it that is thoroughly biblical, backed up by tons of evidence and logic. I'm thinking of the audience, and I'm thinking there's people who are going to say, I'm not a Calvinist, and I don't even know what that is. And there's people who are much more interested in church history and so forth, and they'll know exactly what we're talking about. What most people don't think about, because we mainly focus on doctrinal division and denominational differences. You know, I go to a non-denominational church. We don't care about some of the stuff. Maybe, maybe you do. Is that it didn't start with Luther and the Reformers and the Anabaptists and the Puritans. It started with original sin way back with St. Augustine. At the time of the Reformation, there's practically just a debate going on between the Catholic Church at the time and and the Reformers on who understands Augustine most. Mm. That's still the case today, but people just don't attribute it to him. It's such an accepted presuppositional norm. Just assume that's exactly what the Bible teaches, and you think you're arguing Bible versus Bible, but you're not. You're arguing tradition versus tradition, because it wasn't always that way, and there's a whole giant wing of the East who never believed these things and thought that they were absurd that children were born evil, that babies went straight to hell if they weren't baptized. People today do think that a lot of these things, they can't stomach them. Well, but even even as a Calvinist arguing in your 20s and 30s, didn't you feel that you always had to dress up what you were saying to somebody so that they didn't deck you? (laughs) I mean, I did. But then the way I assuaged myself was, well, sometimes the truth hurts. And People just need to hear the truth. It's weird. I don't know if it's my personality or if it's because I, I really do care about the people that I've tried to evangelize. I'm at the top floor of the downtown mall outside uh, AMC Theater. And like it or not, this is what I used to do. I, I actually, if anything, I had a lot of good conversations with people that seemed productive. But I, I stop a gentleman and. I've been using the way of the master. This guy, he's he's probably like six foot five. I'm not nearly that tall. And I go up, I go up to him. I, I start the conversation with a, a Bible tract, a coin that has the Ten Commandments on them. And it was an effective way to get people talking. You've broken these commandments. How many times have you told a lie? What's that make you? A liar. Okay, so you're lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart, and you're gonna have to face God on judgment day. That's sort of how it went, but he looked at me and said, you came down here just to tell me this. I mean, the conversation was on. And he gives me this bear hug that cracks my back. And then he went to his movie. And I thought, that's how almost every conversation I had with people one-on-one went. It's obviously times that people 
got angry or got defensive. Out of hundreds of conversations, most of them went well. And I'm telling them these hard things. I would ask people, this was a question I started to ask people. I said, if God sent you to hell for your sins, would it be right? I was shocked how many people said yes. And again, I would usually get some sort of hug or a nice goodbye and and I would leave. Now, part of me regrets some of the things I said now, but what they saw was love. I don't know how else you can hear these things and not get angry unless you think it's love, at least. I think that's what they saw. And so usually people didn't get that turned off by my Calvinistic gospel presentation. As you've told that story, and that was a fantastic story, by the way, uh, just that it, it went that way more often than not, we, you know, where people were grateful um, to hear. I think we have two two common denominators with every human that's ever lived, and that every human, if they're even displaying a modicum of honesty with themselves, will admit. Number one, death unites us all. We all know that. And then the second thing is, what am I going to do with the little amount of time I get here? Translated, I'm not living up to what I need to live up to. We all experience that. We all experience that in some form throughout our entire lives. Those are the common denominators. What we're doing here, we feel, is so important because the story you tell yourself as a result of, you're going to die, what are you going to do with the little amount of time you have here? And what story are you going to tell yourself to make those things make sense? And those things are actually the things that bring you conviction also. So how do you respond to that conviction? If you don't feel like you have a way out of it, and that the best you can do is just get repeated assurances of salvation. Because it doesn't really make you feel better. Let's say somebody ascends. Let's say somebody feels like they're living up to the standard, whatever the standard is. Obviously, I think that's an internal echo back to Eden, but that's another conversation. Let's say somebody has tons of success with money in their career. They have the best family. They're still going to die. They know that. They're going to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to protect all of those resources, both people, money, assets that they've accrued in their lives because they're going to die. It's a double-edged sword when a, when a nation acquires extreme amount of wealth. Now you have to protect it. Wealth usually gives the illusion that you are secure. But you actually, it just makes you more vulnerable. When you think about death and that your time is limited and the clock's ticking, and how am I going to use my time? And do I want to make it count? Okay, at that, at that point, you can either listen to that voice and say, I'm going to improve my time the best that I can do, whether it's in being a good father, reaching out to people who need help, prayer, all the disciplines of the Christian life, or you can drown it out, which is what a lot of us do. And we kind of fluctuate back and forth between those. What bugs me at night when I go to sleep is how good of a father was I today. When you start thinking in this long term that you're going to have to meet God someday, it reorders your time. And time is really all you have. And death is the expiration on the time. And the hilarious thing too, and I just want to interject to make this point. The hilarious thing too, is you can have a, a, clear vision of what you think you want your life to go like knowing those two things or at least being aware of those two things death and the fact that you're not living up to some standard but we have such a propensity to get sidetracked 
there will be major upheavals in your in your little plan whenever you formulate it. I mean, there is there is darkness inside of us, and we want to please ourselves. That is all true, and you will have some transgression. You will have some sickness. You will not be making nearly enough money as you need to make to achieve your goals. You're going to have a real ops. My point is, you're going to have real obstacles to whatever plan you think you've hatched up to get out of this whole death and and standard failure uh, dilemma. If if somebody steals food because there's no food available, most people look at that and they don't think it's right, but they kind of understand. You're not ready to necessarily lay down the law on that person or that kid who stole some food. If someone has just been hurt emotionally or physically really badly and they become a jerk and they're snappy and they're short with you, you kind of understand. They're not being themselves ever since this happened. When people are put in this a survival situation, we naturally sympathize with that because we understand it. We understand what it's like to wake up and be a jerk. And we hope that somebody has some grace for us and will forgive us when we ask. Keep going with numerous examples. I mean, just a dog that's about to die and your family pet bites you at the end. You know that's not your dog. What's going on in a lot of these scenarios? Well, we were watching a show, Luther, on a BritBox. Police officer is involved in letting a robbery proceed because he's going to get a cut. Guy's been working on the force forever and is close friends with the main detective. It goes wrong and someone gets killed and now his conscience is eating him up. He's got a he's got an accomplice in this, and the man's nephew gets killed as a result. To cover it up, he strangles him with a necktie. Then he goes to Luther's home. I'm I'm totally ruining season one just for everybody, but he he goes to Luther's home to bait Luther through his estranged wife to get him to the house so that he can kill him. In the process, he kills his wife. And then at the end, he's begging to be killed. What's so weird, though, he's like so back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's, it's really interesting to watch. He's um, He's torn up with guilt. He's also once punished for it, so it'll stop. When the punishment doesn't come... He just acts out again. He, he's ready to defend himself. He's a he's scenario. He's pinned a, the, the wife's murder onto Luther. And now he's setting Luther up as a murderer. And it, it's the back and forth, back and forth. But you look at the guy, at the whole scenario. Well, I know some people would have no sympathy. I have this little bit of sympathy that it's like, if you hadn't made that first wrong choice and just accepted the consequences, the death, Really, the death, death to your your career, death yeah. to your reputation, financial. Well-being. You got to rebuild. If you if you accepted that, you wouldn't have spiraled in this way. But but what started the whole thing? It was a survival response. The survival response led to fear. The fear led to a murder. The murder led to another murder. That led to lying and elaborate you know, deceptive move on his part to pin it on someone else. And in the end, he's dead. 
you could pick many, many TV shows that would portray something similar, but it's always, I'm put in this survival situation. And by survival, I just mean survival is your reputation. Survival is your source of income and your livelihood. Survival is how you even see yourself in the mental image that you get, whether or not you can stand yourself. Survival with a physical threat. Survival with lack of food and famine and all the things that Paul really lays out when he says what he's been going through and famine, nakedness, sword. And he's saying we're more than conquerors in those situations. You can take that position. But if you don't, we understand because we know what it's like to be afraid. How many movies or scenarios where someone who's done despicable things is now, their life is now threatened. Somebody's got a gun to their head or something. They're ready to punish the person for whatever they've done. And they start begging for their life. And suddenly you feel this sympathy towards that fear. It's not that you, you want the person to go free. You see their fear and it connects to you. You just know instinctively what it's like to be afraid. Biblically, that's the cause of depravity. And that's the measure with which we either offer grace often or withhold it. What I mean is a kid in some village who's starving swipes a a banana. You don't want to punish that kid. You understand it's still wrong to steal. Now, a person who, a Jeffrey Epstein or a Bernie Madoff, that's a totally different scenario. But the root is identical. And the satanic voice is the same. We have a roadmap that we are just getting started with today. And we thank you very, very much for joining us. If you have any feedback at all, any feedback at all from today's show, please, by all means, share it with us at Adam at trouble-in-paradise.com. Again, that's Adam at trouble-in-paradise.com. Thank you very much for joining, and we will see you next time.